starting week two. All right, first assignment is due today is the extra credit assignment if you haven't done that already. Uh, if you recall, the extra credit assignment required a bunch of different steps, one of which requires me. So if you've already done it, don't worry about it. But if you have not done it and you're going to subscribe and send me that email, make sure you do so by about 9 o'clock tonight if you want it back in time <laughs> to be able to get it. Because if you email me at 3 in the morning, you might not get it back in time to be able to submit that by 6 o'clock. So I say do today. You can actually submit that to the Dropbox anytime by 6 o'clock tomorrow morning. But since it does require me to reply to your email, do it earlier so that you're not uh, missing, not missing out or having it counted late because you end up getting it after, getting the reply uh, too late. So that is due today. Make sure we get that done. And then the first solar observation is due the end of the week. So hopefully you've had a chance to get at least one uh, shadow measurement at this point, get a shadow measurement, and then I'll you can turn those in. Now people turn them in a number of ways. You can write it on a piece of paper if you want. You can turn me in a copy of your data sheet. You can just turn that in to me, a copy of it, and then I'll give that back to you uh, the following week when we come back. So one of those is due on Friday. There will be a quiz starting on Friday. It will be up all weekend and through the time we get back on Wednesday. I'll give you a reminder on Wednesday in case you did other stuff over the holiday weekend and forgot about it. So I will remind you of it on Wednesday so that you still have a chance to complete that before it closes. And then homework one will also be due a week from Wednesday as well. So that's what's coming up. Any questions? Nope, nope. All right. Yep, sign in for me. All right, picture of the day for today then. Uh, this is a galaxy named ARP 188. Fascinating name for it. Uh, it's named for, well, the astronomer's catalog. Uh, Halton Arp was an astronomer who cataloged peculiar galaxies. And you can see why this one might have made his uh, catalog. It doesn't look like a normal standard galaxy that we're used to looking at. You see nice galaxies with these big spiral arms around. But usually not this great long tail stretching out. And this happened to be galaxy number 188 in his catalog. You'll find that's how most things in astronomy are named, or is by their catalog, how their catalog designations. This is a spiral galaxy. You can see that up here. There's a central portion. You can see spiral arms swinging out from that. Now we'll talk about galaxies a lot more later in the class. But for this one, what we're really looking at is this tail that is stretched off well beyond it. And that's what uh, ARP was studying was these types of galaxies that were unusual. And what we found is that a lot of these galaxies that were classified as peculiar are really galaxies that are interacting with another galaxy. They're galaxies that are colliding together. So there's actually another galaxy, hard to see back beyond here, up in the upper right corner behind this galaxy. Kind of gets blurred out by the galaxy in front of it. That has collided with this galaxy. Now when I say collided, we're used to thinking of collisions, right? We smash something into something else and it happens instant, it's done. Galaxy collisions take a long, long time. Galaxies are moving very, very fast. Mentioned that last time, right? We talked about how fast we're moving through our galaxy is moving. But the distances are even bigger. So even though you're moving so fast, the distances are so tremendous that it will take millions of years for the galaxies to collide. 
So for us to sit there and watch them is not something we can do. We're never going to sit there and watch two galaxies collide uh, in real life. We can sit there and take images of them today and we can take images next week and 10 years and 100 years from now. They're not going to change. Their distances are just so tremendous. But we can see the effects of the collision that happened over the last few million years and where as they collided material was thrown off. Thrown off in this big big tail and big stream behind it. We know that it's relatively new because of the color of it. You see the galaxy here has some yellowish red color towards the center and some more blue color towards the outer edges. Whereas this stream is almost completely blue. Blue uh, for stars means very young, very hot stars. And stars that don't live a whole long, a whole long time. A few million years, 10 million years. Sounds like forever, right? 10 million years, my goodness, they live forever. But compared to our sun, which lives 10 billion years, that's one one-thousandth of their lifetime. That's hardly anything. So, you know, a human lifetime, one one-thousandth of a human lifetime isn't all that much. So, these stars do not live very long. So, we know that they had to have formed recently. Otherwise, they would be long gone. And we wouldn't see this bluish color anymore. So, we know that it's recently in the last couple of million years. So we will look more at galaxies in general and some different galaxy collisions and things we'll talk about later on in the course. The other thing I wanted to point out in this image is what you're looking at. Uh, you see a couple of stars here. There's a star there, these three, and that one. Among the other bright objects that you see in there, just about everything else is a galaxy. The stars stand out because stars look like points and that means they get this little cross pattern when we look at them through the telescopes. I'll talk about that again a little more when we get to telescopes. But those are stars. Everything else you're seeing there is another galaxy like this, like our own galaxy, just much, much further away. So just trying to give you a little idea, some tiny portion of the universe here and how many other galaxies there are out there. So I thought I'd mention, mention that as well, that each of the, everything you're seeing there, with a couple exceptions, is really another galaxy. Questions? Alrighty. Alright. Well then we will head off to chapter one. Let's go ahead and get started here. Uh, chapter one takes us through a couple thousand years of history in a few slides. Um, a history of astronomy at least. And sort of our understanding of how things work in the universe. And it's titled The Copernican Revolution. Uh, you may have heard of Nicholas Copernicus, who's a great astronomer from the uh, 1400s, 1500s, uh, 1400s. And he was the first modern astronomer, at least, to come up with the idea, propose the idea, that the Earth was not the center of the universe, but that the Sun was instead. So he was the first modern astronomer to make this. Uh, big which ended up being coming a great revolution in terms of our understanding of how things work in the universe. For thousands of years before that, the Earth was at the center. You know, seemed natural to us. You walk outside, we're not moving. We don't feel like we're moving that million miles an hour that I gave you last time through the galaxy. So it seems natural to assume that we are moving. So everything was based, all of the explanations that we saw were based on the Earth being the center. And we'll look at that here in a, in a minute. 
sketch here of an astronomer from probably the Renaissance time looking out. Uh, that would be a typical telescope. Those are about the size of Galileo's telescopes. We've heard of Galileo who uh, used the first telescope looking at the sky. Only a couple, only an inch or so across in terms of lenses. So very, very tiny by comparison, but that big across compared to just your eye is tremendous jump in what we were able to see. And he was able to see, we'll talk about later, lots of things that we were, una that were unable to see before, even with the most sophisticated equipment that did not involve a telescope. So by today's standards, it's tiny. The little Galileo scope that we're going to do has a couple inch lens. So that much bigger than actually the telescopes that Galileo himself had. So very, very tiny telescopes, but a big change in our understanding, beginning to make these first observations, first detailed observations of the sky even more accurately than could have been done before. So units of this chapter that we're going to look at, uh, the primary thing and the big problem for the Earth being at the center of the universe is the way the planets appear to move in the sky. And we're going to talk about that and how it was explained. How do we explain how the planets move? Why is that so important? Well, astronomers hundreds of years ago uh, were really not that different than astrologers. You go back a few, about five, six hundred years, astronomy and astrology were one. They're not completely different, where if you tell, ask an astronomer about astrology, you'll get some big hour-long rant on you know, how uh, pseudoscience and all of that. Hundreds of years ago, they were the same. And the astronomer was the person who cast the horoscopes as well. So they had to be able to know the motions of the planets. They had to know where the planets were going to be in the sky. You had to be able to predict that because if you didn't predict the event, you didn't last very long, right? And it wasn't just getting fired. It was like getting beheaded, you know? You were gone. So you had to be able to understand the motions of the planets. That's very difficult to explain how the planets appear to move in the sky. They're not simple. Like the sun, sun is a very simple motion, pretty easy to explain. The moon, not so bad. Um, the stars, pretty easy. But the planets were really, really difficult to be able to explain. And making that jump that Copernicus did really gave us modern astronomy, the beginnings of modern astronomy and understanding how the universe actually works. And then from that, we'll see later astronomers actually developed a set of laws of planetary motion explaining how, they, explaining how the planets appear to move. And then building on that, uh, another, another scientist that most of you have heard of, I hope, Isaac Newton, actually developed some laws of motion giving us a physical understanding. So not just how things appear to move in the sky, but why do they move? Why does it actually move this way? The early astronomers, and even when we had the laws of planetary motion, we could explain how the planets moved and where it was going to be, but we didn't ha yet have the understanding of why. And that's what we'll look at when we come to Newton uh, later on. So let's start off. First of all, I mentioned, if you look at the sun and you watch it over the course of years, and years and decades, and you could find its motion. You could predict where it's going to be extremely accurately. Same with the moon, and same with the stars. They're very easy, and they're consistent with the Earth being at the center. If they were not, that might have made all the difference. If they, if they had trouble with those motions of the main, of those main objects, like trying to explain the motion of the sun, maybe we'd have jumped, made this jump hundreds of years before. But the moon, well, the moon is orbiting the Earth, so 
We're right on that one. Moon does orbit the Earth, so its motion better be consistent with an Earth-centered universe because to the, moon, to, the, to the Moon, it is orbiting around the Earth, so we're correct there. The Sun, not so bad. Yeah, the sun, Earth isn't moving around the Sun. The Earth is moving around the Sun. The Sun isn't moving around the Earth, but the motions are the same. It doesn't really matter. The motion is all relative. If we're moving around the Sun or the Sun's moving around us, the apparent motion, what we're going to see, is going to be the same. Same thing with the stars. If we're orbiting and causing the stars to move or the stars are orbiting around us, either way it's very easy to explain them in an Earth-centered system. Very simple motions. The difficulty was the planets. The five planets that were known at the time, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, it's all that was known at the time to the ancient astronomers, the only planets that can be seen with the naked eye. They didn't move the same way. They were very difficult to explain. They moved with respect to the stars. Right? If we go out there and look at Orion or the Big Dipper, right? everybody knows the patterns. You see that pattern and you come back next week, next year, you come, this pattern's the same. Big Dipper still looks like the Big Dipper. Orion still looks like Orion. The stars are all in the same place relative to each other. So here in this case it's Leo. You know, there's a pattern of stars that make out this section of Leo and there it is. And if we come back 10 years from now or 100 years from now, we're still going to see that same pattern. The stars don't move much relative to each other. But the planets, on the other hand, Mars here moving through it's changing position relative to the stars. So it might be here. A month later it'll be here. Another month later it'll be here. Then here. They change their position. So they're moving among the stars and that's how they got their name as planets or wanderers because they wandered through the fixed stars. They didn't stay in one constellation. They'd travel through the constellations much like the sun. Okay, but we can explain the sun so we should be able to explain the planets as well. Well, unlike the Sun, the planets change their brightness as well. Sometimes planets will get much brighter or much fainter. They'll change their speed, how fast they're moving. Sun does to some small effect, but not near as much as the planets do. And the big problem was that planets have what we call retrograde motion. When we watch the Sun as it moves through the sky, it goes in one direction. It goes around, makes a big loop through the constellations of the zodiac and comes back to where it started. It does the same thing all over again. The planets don't do that. The planets move, as is shown in the little diagram here. The inset here, here's a couple of different instances where the planet was moving, went around, made a loop, and then headed back. They have what we call retrograde motion. Instead of moving in just one direction, which the sun would do, there's the path of the sun, just move straight through that way. The planet will move through, stop, stop moving, turn around, go back the other way for a while, stop again, and turn and head forward. So for a couple of months there, the planet will appear to be moving backwards relative to everything else in the sky. Now that's hard to explain. Why is this planet that's orbiting around us changing its, its direction? Why is it stopping and going another way? That's something that is very difficult to explain in an Earth-centered system. It can be done and was done. Very nice models were made to be able to explain this. In fact, here it is. This is a standard geocentric model. Here's the Earth at the center, not unmoving. 
Here's the planet, but the planet doesn't orbit directly around the Earth. The planet goes around in what is called an epicycle, a little circle, while the center of that epicycle orbits around the Earth. The, de- the name of this, the deferent, is the main circle, the main orbit. The planet sits on this little circle, the smaller circle, the epicycle, and those two orbit around each other, and that can explain the motions. It explains the general motion as the whole thing moves around the Earth, why it moves around, and it can explain why it moves backwards as it goes on this inner part of the loop. It's going to appear to go backwards for a short time. Now I should mention one other problem was that Astronomers early on had two things stuck in their head that turned out not to be true. One was that everything moved in circles. Absolutely everything in the heavens moved in circles. So no squiggly lines, no triangles, no square shaped orbits, no nothing else. Everything in the heavens, the heavens were perfect. Circle is the perfect shape, so everything in the heavens moved in circles. That goes back to the ancient ancient Greek philosophers. And that stuck with us up until the 1500s. Really, it was for quite a while. So everything was circular, so everybody had it stuck in their head that it was circles. So nobody tried to look at anything else. Could the planets move around in a square shape? Well, that wouldn't make much sense to us either, but you know, nothing, nobody else was thinking of anything else. So they moved in circular orbits and they moved at uniform speeds. So they moved at the same speed as they went around. So as the sun went around the earth, it always moved at the same speed. As this planet goes around the epicycle, it has some speed. You can adjust that speed to make it fit the observations as best you can, but there's just some constant speed. It'll go around this little circle, another speed, this will go around this circle at another speed. So you could then, we were stuck on those two. And that was not really changed until not even the time of Copernicus. Copernicus used these same two in his first models. His first models of the, of the solar system actually used these as well. He just switched the sun to being at the center. So what we're looking at here, this is the basic model of a geocentric solar, a geocentric solar system. There's the Earth, planet on an epicycle. That epicycle then orbits around the Earth. And that can explain the retrograde motion. It can explain to some extent the brightness changes, right? and the speed changes. As you have two different motions there, sometimes those motions add together. The planet will appear to go a little bit faster. Sometimes they'll subtract. The planet will appear to go a little bit slower. And you can then explain all of the motions that we're seeing. Exactly? No. But don't forget, we're also talking thousands of years ago. We're well before the time of the telescope, so we couldn't measure things as accurately as we can today. Now, for today's purposes, we wouldn't be able to explain it with such a simple model. And as we look at this, it gets kind of complicated. Here's a little more detailed view. There's the Earth at the center. The moon goes around the Earth just in a regular orbit. It doesn't need any epicycle. Uh, Mercury, next planet, then Venus. The sun, again, the sun has no epicycle. Mars, Jupiter, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn. So as they went around, they'd form these little loops and they'd have those little retrograde, uh, retrograde motions 
in the sky. So we'd be able to see, explain, in general at least, what we were, what we were watching in the sky. Now it gets more and more complicated. You can see the method gets a little complicated, right? We've all drawn a solar system before, right? You draw the sun and you draw the planets around it and it's not quite so messy as this. They could even get worse as measurements got better and better. The, the planets weren't fitting exactly what the model said. We know why today, because the model was wrong, but at the time what they'd have to do is add another epicycle. So instead of just Saturn on one epicycle, there might be another circle on that, and you might put two or three together to try to be able to explain what you're seeing in the sky. They could do pretty well. They could get very accurate measurements, measuring it to within, typically within minutes of arc. Remember, minutes are 1 60th of a degree, so the full moon is 30 arc minutes across. So if you're measuring it to 1 or 2, or sorry, 1 30th of the size of the full moon, that's, that's pretty accurate with your eye. That's a pretty accurate measurement that you're able to get. So, not bad. Nothing compared to modern measurements, but very, not very good compared to, I mean, not very good for what we had at the time. So, that was Ptolemy, was the astronomer who did the great work on this. Uh, Greek astronomy for, astronomer from 2nd second, second century. AD, who wrote a great work, uh, the Almagest, which really defined this, defined this model for, for, many, for over a thousand years. He was in the second century AD. It wasn't until the time of Copernicus, you know, 12, 1300 years later, that it was changed, that it was really suggested that maybe his model was wrong. In the meantime, people were modifying it, like any scientific uh, work. People were making modifications, were finding, well, where can we do this better? Where can we better be able to predict the planets by changing it? But his was the main work of astronomy for over a thousand years. Now, if you think of that, we use things like Newton now. Uh, Newton and Galileo are only a few hundred years ago. So this lasted for quite a while. It was quite a good model in terms of being able to predict the motions of the planets. Was it right? No. But it was able to at least make the predictions and give people a way to be able to predict the motions. But it gets messy. And one of the things we want is the simplest model we can get. And what we see here, this is uh, Copernicus's model. Copernicus put the sun at the center, had the Earth orbiting around, the, around it, and then in this case we're looking at Mars, Mars orbiting around the Earth, right? That's the standard solar system we're all used to drawing. Sun there, draw the planets, draw the planets around it. The nice thing about Copernicus's model is that it is able to explain retrograde motion without any other without all the epicycles. You didn't have to put epicycles in to explain retrograde motion. Retrograde motion when the sun's at the center naturally occurs. So remember we talked about scientific method. We wanted the nice, simple, and elegant model. Well, this is a very nice way to explain retrograde motion. Because here's the Earth zipping around the sun. Here's Mars, a little further away, moving a little bit slower. Every time we come around, Mars is here. We come around, we're going to zip past Mars. And when we go past Mars, we make it look like it's going backwards. 
Is it really going backwards? No. Any more than the semi on the highway is really going backwards when you pass it, right? You zip past it, well, it looks like it's going backwards relative to you. But we know it's just going forward just at a slower rate. Mars is doing the same thing. As you come zipping by it, it's going to look like first it's here, then here, then here. It positions one, two, three, four, five. It's starting to slow down as we're coming up to pass it. Six, now it's already going backwards. Seven, eight, nine. So it will go through this little loop very naturally. That's exactly what will occur in space if we observe the planets, if the sun is at the center and everything is moving around the sun. So we get rid of one bit of complication in terms of the epicycles. We just now have to explain how the earth is moving when we go out there and it doesn't look like it. We go out there and look, it does not, again, still does not feel like we're moving when you walk out there. It doesn't feel like we're moving, you know, a thousand miles an hour, we're spinning around. It does not feel like any of that motion is occurring. All right, I'm going to take a little aside here and talk about Galileo for a second. Um, and we'll come back to the planets. Galileo actually observed the planets. Uh, he did not invent the telescope. So Galileo was not actually the inventor of the telescope. That was a Dutch astronomer who actually developed the mechanism. But Galileo was the first one to turn the telescope to the sky and to record his observations. So it's the first records that we have. So that's why Galileo is credited of doing is really making the first observations. Well, what are you going to observe when you have this new instrument you want to use to look at the sky? Well, some of the biggest things, you're going to look at the moon, right? Brightest object in the night sky. And he found a couple of things. He found that the moon had craters, mountains, valleys, all sorts of stuff. Mountains and valleys, craters. Well, cool, but what's the big deal? Well, if we go back to here, Early astronomers thought that the heavens were perfect. Everything moved in circles, everything moved at uniform speeds. All the objects would be perfect spheres. So the moon being imperfect was a big blow to the thoughts of the ancient Greeks and the early astronomers. They thought that everything should be perfect. And this was, went against their, against their teachings. That the moon has something, that the moon is not perfect well, eh, maybe we can get around this one. The moon is so close to the earth that it's been corrupted by the evil influences of the earth and that's why it's not perfect. It's just too close, it's just too close to the earth. So maybe we can get around that one. That's why the, earth, the moon's not so bad but it's just been a little bit corrupted because it's too close to our, our evil influences here. So, meh. Okay, how about the sun? When you make your Galileo scope, I think it has you put a sticker on it that says don't look at the sun. So don't, you don't want to point that at the sun, uh, certainly not and look through it. That will, even that little telescope, that very easily will uh, give you a good burn on your eye and cause significant damage. But Galileo was able to look at the sun. Um, his telescopes were not near the quality we have today. And he also did not look at the sun you know, during the day. You didn't point the telescope at the sun. Typically what you did was you projected the telescope through the sun and then you'd look at it on a piece of paper behind it. 
Not too close. Yes, the paper will catch on fire if you get it up to the focus. But if you get far enough back, you can actually see the image on that paper. And that gives you a chance to look at the sun. So on the sun, he saw sunspots and could watch those sunspots and could see that the sun was rotating. You could watch those sunspots move around the sun. So now we not only have imperfections on the moon, but we also have imperfections on the sun. It's getting worse and worse for the perfection of the heavens. So eventually we're going to see that that ends up throwing out these two and really helps us better understand the motions of the planets. So the moon isn't perfect, the sun isn't perfect. Really those two alone don't do a whole lot. They don't really prove anything. They don't say that the earth is moving or that the earth has to be moving. So going back to our models, does, it this, does this really support the heliocentric theory? Well, other than that we, part of it was that everything was perfect, they really don't do anything to that. They really don't change anything to do with the heliocentric, whether the sun or the earth is at the center. But let's start looking at the planets. A um, couple of the br- two brightest planets, right? They're just close together in the morning sky this past week. Uh, Jupiter He found that Jupiter had moons or stars. He saw little stars. He couldn't distinguish them as moons as we can see today, but he saw that when he looked at Jupiter, he'd see a little disk could actually see it as a planet. And he'd see these four rather bright stars that would orbit around it. And he could watch them. He could observe them one day and they'd look like this. And he could observe them a day later and they'd be in different positions. And over time, over months, he was able to actually measure out the orbits of these and find out that yes, they are orbiting around Jupiter. So Jupiter now has moons. It's the first time we've ever seen an object that orbits something other than the Earth. Right? We're going back. Still, we're still Earth-centered. Consider Earth-centered. Now we actually have evidence that objects can orbit something that is not the Earth. That had never been seen before. Everything was orbiting the Earth or considered maybe to be orbiting the Sun. But this is actually evidence that objects can orbit other objects. Again, is it proof? It doesn't really mean that the Earth still couldn't be the center of the solar system. Still does not mean that. Venus. And he found that Venus had phases. Well, we talked briefly about phases of the moon. Goes through that cycle from a thin crescent to a nice full phase, down to a crescent again, and around and around again. Well, he found that Venus did exactly the same thing. Venus had phases as well. Now, the geocentric model, Ptolemy's model, predicted that Venus would have phases. But not only did it have phases, but it had a complete, a complete cycle of phases. Went through all the phases. You could see it as a thin crescent. You could see a full phase of Venus. Ptolemy's model did not predict that. Ptolemy's model with the Earth at the center says that, yeah, Venus would go through phases, but it would just be different sizes of crescents. It would be a thicker crescent or a thin crescent. In order to get a full phase of Venus, you have to be on the other side of the Sun. 
And if we have the orbit here, there's the Earth, there's the Sun. This is Ptolemy's model. We have Venus somewhere in between. If Venus is in between, let me do it this way. Venus is orbit here and then there's an epicycle. Venus can be anywhere on this epicycle as it moves around, but it can never get opposite to the Sun in the sky. It can't get on the other side of the Sun in order to see a full phase. So we would expect to see phases, but we'd only see a crescent phase. It would always be between the Earth and the Sun and we'd see it as a thin crescent. In a heliocentric model with the Sun at the center and Venus here, Earth here, Venus could be on the opposite side. So we could see a full phase of Venus where the sunlight illuminates off Venus and then reflects back to Earth. We could see a full or very nearly full phase of Venus. What did that prove? Well, it still doesn't prove the Earth is at the center. We're getting closer and closer with each step. But Galileo actually did not make any observations that really proved that Earth had to be at the center. What this proved is that Venus had to orbit around the Sun. Venus did not orbit around the Earth. That was set once, once Galileo observed this, it was known that Venus could not possibly orbit around the Sun and it finally, after almost 1500 years, threw Ptolemy's model out. But it did not say that the Earth could not be the center. There were still some uh, different models that came up that you could use to explain put the Earth at the center and put the Sun orbiting the Earth, but put all the planets orbiting the Sun. Are they simple models? No. But at the time, at the time of Galileo and even into the early 1700s, they were seriously considered along with Copernicus's model. It wasn't until uh, first in the 1700s when one, dis one discovery was made that kind of showed the Earth was moving and then about a hundred years later when we really finally were able to measure the motion of the Earth. So each of these helped, gave some evidence for the fact that the Earth was moving, but really never proved it. He gave us some good circumstantial evidence, but was not really able to prove anything. As long as I'm mentioning what I don't have on there, let me just put up Saturn. Uh, Saturn has rings. Actually, Galileo couldn't see the rings. His telescopes were not quite big enough. He saw it as two blobs on either side of the planet. So he saw a big blob there on each side. He saw Saturn here and he saw a blob over here and a blob over here and sometimes they were there but ten years later they might be gone. They just disappear. Turns out Another, later, later in the 1600s, bigger telescopes were able to show us the rings, but Galileo's just weren't big enough to be able to see anything other than the brightest parts of the ring and show those. So, he sort of saw the ring, he saw the rings, but he didn't actually identify them as rings. So, number of different things that Galileo was able to see with his telescope. Mars, not so much, there's not a lot to see with Mars. Its two moons are relatively small and difficult to detect and weren't discovered until nearly a hundred years later. Uh, Mercury, so close to the Sun, again very difficult to see. So most of the work that Galileo did was on these, on these objects here. But they were all little pieces of evidence against the, against the fact that the heavens were unchangeable, against the fact that the Earth was the center of the solar system. So here's the model, here's the better picture showing the phases of Venus. 
give you one better than my little sketch on there. Here's the Earth. Here's the Sun. In order to explain the motions of how Venus moves, there's actually a line here that connects them and this line stays fixed. So the central point of Venus's orbit always stays between the Earth and the Sun. Meaning that you might see a thin crescent, thin crescent, thin crescent, oh, maybe a thicker crescent and then a thinner crescent again. Could change in size, could change in brightness, but you'd never get a full phase. Whereas here if the Sun, Venus can come between the Earth and the Sun and can have a very thin crescent phase like it did here, or it can be on the other side and get quite a full phase. So the phases of Venus you cannot explain in Ptolemy's Earth-centered model. Again, there were other models that still explained it, so it wasn't until well after Galileo that it was finally put to rest what type of orb, what, how the solar system actually worked. Alrighty, so. Now I said we came up with some laws of planetary motion based on this. This was done by uh, Johann Kepler. Astronomer lived about the same time as Galileo and he did not observe. He was a mathematician and did detailed calculations on the on the planetary orbits. So he didn't do any, do, do any observations, but what he did is he took the observations of another astronomer that he had worked with and he used those to actually measure the orbits of the planets. So another astronomer previously had made great detailed position measurements of the planets over decades. And Kepler was able to take those and determine a number of different things. And his first law that he found says that the orbits are ellipses. Not circles, not squares, not triangles. Right? We didn't really expect those anyway. But that the orbits are ellipses and not circular. So circular orbits are gone. What is an ellipse? Well, it's showing you how you can draw an ellipse here. An ellipse is just a, a curve where every point on the surface, if you take this distance and this distance and add them up, they're always the same. It doesn't matter where you are on the surface of that ellipse. So it's like a circle. And in fact, if you push these two push pins closer and closer together, it'll look more and more like a circle and get very close to being a circle. The further apart they are, the more stretched the ellipse becomes. The ellipse drawn here is extremely exaggerated for any of the planets. Most of the planetary orbits are extremely close to being circular. That's why it took us so long to get rid of this idea of circular orbits. We were stuck on it because the orbits were so close to being circular. And in fact, if you draw them on a piece of paper and draw the relative scaled orbits of any of the planets, they're all going to look exactly like circles to you. But they're actually slightly squished and that's what Kepler was able to determine. He finally had accurate enough observations to be able to say that guess what? The orbits are not circular. They're actually elliptical. And the Sun, there's, these are the foci. Each focus here, the Sun is located at one of those. So there's the Sun and the planet orbits around. There's a couple of terms that come in here. As the planet orbits around, that means sometimes the planet is going to be close to the Sun. Sometimes it's going to be further away. That's true for the Earth. We're closest to the Sun in January, furthest away in uh, July. 
but that is the position is called perihelion is the closest approach that's when you're closest to the sun you might have also here perigee that's closest to the earth so perihelion helios is referring to the sun perigee Geo is referring to the Earth. We also have the furthest distance is aphelion. When we're furthest from the Sun. So a couple of different positions that are coming up or apogee. Again, furthest from the Earth. So when we're actually the furthest and closest away. Those are just the terms for those. But you got to be careful because you, the ending makes a big difference. If I talk about perihelion, that is referring to something orbiting around the sun. If I talk about perigee, it's talking about something that is orbiting around the earth. So a couple of the terms there that I wanted to just explain. So one big change now is that we have, instead of the planetary orbits being circular, we've now found that they're elliptical. Now Kepler's second law, uh, called the equal areas law, this is how he found it, so I'll explain this a little bit differently in a second. But really what Kepler's second law states is that if you take an imaginary line that connects the sun and the planet, and you let, it, you let that planet move over time, that line, you know, connect it with a string, how much area is that going to sweep out? This area labeled C that's how much area it's going to sweep out over a period of time. If we do the same period of time, say this is one month, it goes from here to here and sweeps out this area. At point B, it goes from here to here, sweeps out that area. Another point, it goes from here to here in one month, sweeps out that much area. Does this really mean anything? Right? What does this mean? What it's really telling you, those areas are all the same, but it's really what it's telling you physically is that the planet's speed is changing. Okay, if the planet were moving at a uniform speed, those areas would not be the same because it would take, you know, one month to go this far. Well, then over here it would take one month, two months, three months, you know, four months to go around that section. It doesn't because the orbital speed is changing. Which gets rid of our other big thing that the early astronomers had was that uniform speeds. Objects in the solar system do not move at uniform speeds. So I'm going to say equal areas, but it's also non-uniform velocity. Non-uniform velocity or speed. They're not moving at the same speed. What it really means is that when the planet is closest to the sun, it's moving a little bit faster. When the planet is further away from the sun, it's moving a little bit slower. That works here on Earth too. If you go ahead and measure out how many days there are in each season, you find out that winter is a couple days shorter than summer. It's like two or three days shorter. That's because the Earth is moving faster. So the Earth zips through the winter season a little bit faster than it does in the summer. So you find that winter is like 88 days or something and summer is 91 or 92. There's a couple day difference between them because in summer, we're a little bit further away, we're moving slower, it takes us a longer time to move. In winter, we're a little bit closer to the sun, 
greatly exaggerated here, moving a lot faster. So what Kepler's second law tells us, Kepler's first law tells us that they're ellipses. Kepler's second law tells us that they're not moving at the same speed all the time. Two great big changes from everything that Ptolemy had said, from everything that Copernicus had said even, to really give us a much better way to be able to measure the planets. Kepler's third law, laws have a tendency to come in threes in physics and astronomy here, so here's another one. Um, I'm going to write this as an equation. It's written out in text up there and there's a table showing some of those, uh, some of these for the planets. Uh, Kepler's third law was found by looking at all these observations, looking at how long it took the planets to orbit around the sun, looking at how far away they were on average, and finding out that there was a relationship between them. That if you took the period, how long it takes this planet to orbit the sun once, and you square it, multiply it by itself, you find out that that's exactly or almost exactly the same as the average distance raised to the third power. So you take that average distance here. The Earth's average distance is one astronomical unit. One times one times one. One to the third power is one. Earth takes one year to go around the sun once. One times one. One squared is also one. So they're exactly the same for the case of the Earth. But, okay, we defined everything relative to the Earth, so big deal. It's going to come out exactly the same. What does it do for the other planets? And you find out that pretty much if you take this and multiply it by itself three times, this and multiply it by itself again, and then divide those two, they come out almost exactly to one. So maybe a little bit bigger here, maybe a little bit smaller, but very, very close to being exactly correct. And that's what Kepler found when he took all these observations and did these calculations. That there was a relationship between how fast a planet orbited around the sun and how far away it was. Now this will come back, this is something we will use over and over as we get through as we get through the course. This turns out when Newton uses this, Newton actually uh, is able to determine this from theory, not just all Kepler did was observe the planets, say here's my big tables of data, this is true. Why is this true? I have not, a, not the slightest idea. But we found that it was true. Same for any of his others. He didn't explain why the orbits are ellipses, why they don't move at the same speed, why this is the case. He just found out that they were true. It wasn't until Newton came up and actually gave us the theory behind this but we'll find that Newton's, third, Newton's version of Kepler's third law actually allows us to weigh objects out in space to determine how much mass there is. So we can use it to determine the mass of Jupiter from its moons, from something orbiting it. We can use it to determine the mass of a galaxy. If something is orbiting around that galaxy and we can determine these two numbers, now we have a way to determine masses. That's not an easy thing to do if you think about looking at the picture of that galaxy. How are you going to figure out how much, how, what its mass is? How much material is there? It's not an easy thing to do. It's not just something you've got, got a big scale you can put it on, right? You can't put it on a great big scale and measure it. This is actually how we go about determining those. All right, well, let me just uh, remind you here, I mentioned the astronomical unit and determining the distance. I gave you the definition of this, I think, way back the first day. 
But that is, re-give it to you here, the distance from the Earth to Sun is one astronomical unit. We knew that for a long, long time. We knew that the Earth and the Sun were one astronomical unit apart. What we didn't know was how big an astronomical unit was. How many miles is that? Now, one astronomical unit is great. And I can tell you that Mars is one and a half astronomical units and Jupiter, or, sorry, and Jupiter is five astronomical units. Venus is about 0.7. So I know relatively how much they, how they compare, but I don't know how big any one of them is. How many miles is it? Is it a thousand miles, a million miles, a billion miles? How much is it? That we did not know. That was not determined until accurately, until very recently. And very recently, meaning within the last 50, 60 years, to really be able to measure that accurately, we need to have some way to get a direct distance to one of these. And that was actually done once we had radar. Once we had radar that was powerful enough to send and bounce a signal off Venus and back, we could then measure it. Radar waves travel at the speed of light, so we know exactly how fast they're going. We can send the signal, wait for its return, measure that time, how long did it take to get us back. If we know the, know the velocity and we know the time, we can then figure out the distance. So we can determine how far away it is, and then we determine that the Earth is about 93 million miles away from the Sun, about 150 million kilometers away from the Sun. It gave us our first good scale of the solar system. Now we'd measured that before. I'm not trying to tell you that it wasn't until radar that we could get any measurement of it. But there were other methods that could be used back in the 17 and 1800s, but they were much more difficult to get. This was the first really precise measurements that we had. And we use things like this now when we're sending spacecraft out. We have to know those distances exactly in order to get a spacecraft to Venus. We need to know that distance exactly. And I think, yep, that's where I'm going to pick up. I will start on Newton's laws. We'll go through Newton's three laws of motion on Wednesday and probably finish up. If things go well, we'll finish up this chapter, chapter then. So don't forget, if you have not done the extra credit assignment and you're going to be doing that, uh, get that in to me today. If you have to send me the email, I said before 9 o'clock, I'll check right about 9 o'clock and see if anybody else sent one that I need to reply to. After that, it probably won't get to anything till morning. And other than that, if you get a chance for a solar observation, the sun's out right now, so if it stays out this afternoon and you're available, that would be a good, make sure we get one in. Have a good rest of the day.